brain development is so intriguing to me. It's just one of those things that gets glanced over, in my opinion, when it comes to our children or even ourselves as adults thinking, oh, genetics plays the role in why I'm so emotional. But it goes beyond genetics. And it's people like Erica Komisar, my guest this week on the podcast, that helps break down what we can do as parents for our kids to maintain their emotional health and well-being. Blondin Professional Real Estate is a family-owned boutique-style brokerage with over 40 years experience serving the counties that surround St. Louis. See how their approach to real estate will help you by visiting blondinrealestate.com. What happens when you put a career-focused woman with two kids trying to balance home and work life in a room with a microphone? Lots of laughter, tears, and great advice. I'm Jill Devine, and welcome to Two Kids and a Career. Better late than never. Actually, it still applies to me. I wish I would have had this week's guest on when I had my oldest daughter. First, let me introduce Erica Komisar to the podcast. Hello. How are you? Thank you for having me, Jill. I am so, 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 so excited to talk to you because as a mother to an almost four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old, I think you have some great advice for me. And I think lots of moms listening will benefit from this conversation. You are a psychoanalyst, a parent coach, and an author. And of course, as I first got information about you, I wanted to talk about your book, which we are definitely going to talk about. And then we have a pandemic that we're in. And then we have racism affecting our kids and affecting our families. And so I was like, wow, we've got a lot to cover because you can cover all of those things. So I guess let's start with what you do, your background, and we'll just go from there. So as you said, I'm a a psychoanalyst and a parent guidance expert. So what I do is see parents much of my days to talk about um, issues with their children, or sometimes it's issues and sometimes it's just parents wanting to understand child development um, and and what they're seeing with their child. But um, what I was seeing in my practice, which is why I wrote the book Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters, I wrote that book because in my practice in Manhattan, I was seeing a real uptick, um, an epidemic of mental disorders in younger and younger children. So very young children, as young as two, were being evaluated, diagnosed, and medicated for things like behavioral problems and ADHD um, and early signs of aggression. And again, I was seeing it earlier and earlier, but no one was asking the really hard questions, which is, you know, these were disorders that I was seeing of, of emotional uh, dysregulation, meaning children not able to regulate their emotions and not able to deal with stress. So where was this coming from? Meaning why weren't children able to regulate their emotions? And so I started looking at research, neuroscience research, epigenetics research, and attachment research. And I basically studied that research for 13 years before I wrote the book. Um, And then I wrote a book because what the research backed up everything that I was seeing um, in my practice, which is that the children who had emotionally and physically present primary caregivers, usually the mother, but um, whoever their primary nurturer or primary caregiver was, those children who had that mother 
we'll call we'll call it a mother. Um, call that mother available uh, for the first three years. Um, did better with their mental health than children who did not have that mother as available to them. Um, and so the research backed up what I was seeing, and I felt that it was you know something that the public really needed to know. Um, that you know that the the risk of having a child with um, some kind of mental issue or emotional issue was higher if you weren't present enough in the first three years. Um, so basically that's, that's what I do. So I see patients, uh, in my office and I see them now remotely. Everybody's seeing patients remotely. I see patients all over the country and all over the world. Yeah. When you talk about the mother not being as available, what exactly does that mean? Because I know you don't mean not being there for ever or not ever being there. I mean, I'm sure that that is one section of it, but is there another description or definition to available? So basically, so let me just define the neuroscience piece, which is that by by three years of age, 85% of a child's right brain uh, or their prefrontal cortex is developed. So meaning by, by three years old, their brain is about what it's going to be going into childhood and adulthood. Um, and the right brain is important for a number of things that affect children's behavior. Um, basically, the right brain is responsible for resilience to stress. It's responsible for the ability to regulate emotions, meaning keeping your emotions from going too high and too low. And when we see things like depression and anxiety in young children and adolescents and adults, basically those are people who cannot regulate their emotions. Um, you know, the idea of being able to get angry without getting enraged or the idea of being able to get um, sad without getting depressed or be able to get excited without being overwhelmed by that excitement, that's emotional regulation. So We know that the right brain is responsible for emotional regulation, resilience to stress, uh, the ability to socialize, and also empathy. So these are very important functions for human beings. And that what we do know is that when mothers are um, physically available to children, uh, mothers do something called buffering children from stress, meaning in the first year in most parts of the world, mothers wear their babies on their bodies. Um, which the mother's body actually regulates the baby's stress levels. Um, So there was a researcher that I interviewed for my book that said that babies in other parts of the world don't cry nearly as much as babies in the Western world because we have this bizarre concept of separating our babies from our bodies very early, putting them in other rooms to sleep, um, you know, putting them in strollers facing out. But in other parts of the world, mothers actually regulate their baby's stress and emotions by wearing their babies for the first year. So, you know, and all of these things have been described in attachment research since the 60s, but there was nothing to back it up. And now we have the neuroscience research to back it up. Mm, That's very interesting. Now, you know, every child is different. So when you talk about the right brain, how much of that could go with genetics as far as depression and and things like that? So what what the research shows uh, was really important research in this field of neuropsychobiology. It's basically three fields coming together. It's the attachment field, the neuroscience field, and the epigenetics field. They all came together to describe kind of the same thing, which is um, 
the research found that there are babies born with what's called a short allele on the serotonin receptor. They are genetically sensitive babies. We, we call them sensitive babies. And a baby who is sensitive to stress uh, maybe a baby who is harder to soothe when they're little. You know, um, pediatricians will often call these babies colicky babies, but we know that all babies have digestive issues. So it's usually not anything to do with their, their digestive system. It's like being raw, feeling emotionally raw. These are babies who are harder to soothe, may cry more, may feel more demanding to parents. Um, they're more sensitive to noise, to touch, to uh, fabrics, to anything in the environment. They're just more sensitive to stress. And we call them sensitive babies. Now, what the research shows is um, the babies that are born with this short allele on the serotonin receptor, if they receive um, what we call sensitive empathic nurturing from their mothers, and their mothers are very present to buffer them from, from this stress, those babies, their outcome for those babies means that they have as good a chance of being healthy emotionally as a baby who's born without that sensitivity. However, the babies who are sensitive, who do not receive that that constant sensitive empathic nurturing and reassurance from the mother and the mother's body, those babies have a greater chance of becoming depressed and anxious and developing mental disorders. I read this. I have no idea if this is even for real or not. But I remember with our second, uh, my brother-in-law made a joke about her. And and I feel like this is with most babies. But when you're standing with them and, and you know, rocking and bouncing up and down, they're OK. But then as soon as you sit down, they lose their mind. And I had did a Google search, you know, because that's just the way it goes. And it, it said something about like the fight or flight where when you have them next to you and up against your chest that they feel protected. Have you, right. is that like a legit thing? That's legit. That is the stress response. So when human beings are exposed to stress, we have an evolutionary response, which is fight or flight, which is basically uh, our HPA access working. Um, the part of our brain that um, responds to stress is called the HPA access. Um, and, and basically, yeah, when we're exposed to stress, our response is either to run or flee, which um, in very young children looks like ADHD or attentional issues. So a lot of what we're seeing in very young children, toddler age, is this quote, quote, unquote, hyperactivity response, which is basically just the flight portion of a stress response. It's an emotional response. Um, and or we're seeing the fight response, which is early signs of aggression. Children who hit other children, bite other children, um, you know, are very aggressive at an early age in class or um, or at home. So, yeah, that's that is what's happening. We are seeing basically children's brains at a very early age on stress because they're forced to be um quote unquote, independent too early of, of the source of their protection. Okay. Okay. So let's talk about the book because there are so many things that just hit and clicked and especially now with the pandemic. So it's called Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. Mm -hmm. So does this mean that moms are supposed to stay home the first three years. What does this mean for a mother? 
again, what it means, it's, it really wasn't a book that was meant to talk about you should work or you shouldn't work. You know, it really wasn't that kind of book. It was sort of made into that by the media. But um, the book basically says what it says. It's, it's factual that uh, more is more. The more physically and emotionally present you are for your baby in the first three years, um, as I said, to regulate that baby's emotions. Every time a mother soothes a baby who's in distress... Um, and provides them with like a sensitive, empathic response to that to that distress. You're basically regulating that baby's emotions. And it isn't something you can just do before you go to work at, in the morning and after you come home. It's, it's something that's constant throughout the day, meaning emotional regulation is what we call a moment-to-moment process. So the more present you are in the first three years, the better off your baby will be. And there's just, there's, that's just factual. So you can take it as it is. That means that the less time you're away from your baby and no mother can be with her baby all the time, every single minute she'd lose her mind. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> so the idea is that we were never meant to raise a baby in isolation, even women in developing parts of the world who don't have nannies and don't go to an office job. They have extended family. They live with their mothers and aunts and grandmothers and their husband and cousins and other siblings of the baby. There's a whole community that supports the mother, you know, um, so it's just that we're so isolated that that mothers feel isolated in raising their babies. There's a huge uptick in postpartum depression because of that isolation. But mothers are not meant to be isolated and raise babies in isolation. But the idea is that, yeah, the more, more is more. The more physically and emotionally available you are in the first three years, the healthier your baby will be. What is so crazy to me, the... United States of America. We're supposed to be innovators. It wasn't until my second daughter that I started doing a little bit more research on maternity leave. And three months of maternity leave, it is not enough. And I started looking at some other countries. And the thing is, I was told with my second daughter, anytime that you have paid off, paid for maternity leave is better than none. And while that's true, it also made me feel, um, it made me angry because it made me feel like, oh, you want more time with your child? Like this is just a vacation. It's not a vacation by any stretch of the imagination. And so when I started doing some research and seeing why other countries were extending maternity leave and the importance of it, it just blew my mind. Well, we have to decide as a society whether we want to have healthy children and whether we want those healthy children to grow into healthy adults. You know, if, right. if quite honestly, we don't care, um, then you give three months of maternity leave or, as you said, that's, you know, to have to feel grateful for three months to be with a newborn baby is a ridiculous idea. Um, you know, to say that that all mothers should be entitled to being with their babies as much as possible in those very early and, um, you know, fragile and impressionable years. If we want society to be as a whole healthy, you know, we have a huge mental 
um, illness problem in America. Um, we have one in five children, 20% of all children um, have some mental disorder. And I would say it's probably higher now um, than when I did this research, because I did the research, you know, so as I said, I researched it for 13 years, and the book came out three years ago, and the book took two years to make, you know, from the publisher to so you'd say, since I did that research, it's probably more like 30 to 40% of children have some form of mental illness. And that means throughout childhood, it may show up when they are in toddlerhood, because the two what we call sensitive periods of brain development are zero to three, in which case some somewhere between two and five, um, these mental disorders may show up. Or, you know, children will have good enough defenses so they don't express it in those early years. But guess what? They express it in the next critical window of development, which is adolescence. So currently I'm writing a book about the second critical window of development, which is 9 to 25. Um, Because that's the second critical window of development where children will have a a quote-unquote breakdown where you'll start to see symptoms of stress that you may not have seen when they were toddlers because it may not have showed up yet. Um, But yeah, so throughout childhood, we have maybe uh, three out of five children that suffer from um, up to three out of five children that suffer from some form of mental disorder sometime throughout childhood. That includes anxiety, depression, ADHD, like symptoms, behavioral problems. What can we do or is there anything we can do to um, start a movement for maternity leave and the knowledge on it? I mean, I know that a lot of it is up to the employer, but I feel like there could be more. Well, now is the window uh, of of, I think there's a window um, of opportunity where we should stand up. I mean, I've been, I wrote this book. One of the reasons I wrote this book was to demand that um, mothering is not only valuable work, that babies need mothers on a biological level to be healthy, that we're talking health here. And that if, um, you know, if you just see it as a luxury or, you know, or some kind of emotional luxury to be with your child in the beginning, then there's a misunderstanding of the function that mothers serve in children's brain development, because mothers actually serve a critical biological function in the brain development of children. And if we understand it as a health issue uh, and as a, as a long-term mental health issue and as a societal well-being issue, there's more urgency. The problem is there isn't urgency because economics is always primary in this country, not in other countries, but in this country, we value economics over anything else. So that is, is, is complicated. So I, you know, and my book was interesting in that it fell between the cracks. So what, what was I saying? I was saying that um, we need to have a a paid maternity leave. Um, And the interesting thing is, the, the far left rejected my book because they saw it as an anti-feminist message. Feminism had nothing to do with me writing this book. Um, it, it was really a book to talk about what children need for their right brains to develop. But it was taken as a, it was interpreted as an anti-feminist message because what I was saying is, Mothers need to be with babies or a primary caregiver needs to be with a baby um, in those first three years. So the left rejected it. And then the far right, who appreciated the message of families first, 
didn't want to pay for it, didn't want to pay for maternity leave. So, you know, you'd say what I'm saying is mothers need to be there. And as a society, we need to make sure mothers can be there. And that's going to require for many people who don't have economic choices. It's going to require a paid maternity leave that is at least a year long. When I first presented the question to you about are you suggesting moms stay home? And I can tell that people now are fighting you on it. I'm just one of those people that I'm like, oh, let's just talk about the facts. Let's talk about what we need to better ourselves. My gosh, I'm so sick of interpreting everything to where it's so political or it's an agenda. Like these are the facts. These are the research. This is what we want to have healthy kids. And oh my gosh, man, I'm so sorry that (laughs) that's something that you have to deal with. Uh, That's not my intent at all. I want to learn and I want to know what I can do to help my child. For example, one of the things about the book, uh, again, it's called Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. So one of the highlights, how to select and train quality childcare if necessary, and how to ease transitions and minimize stress for your baby or toddler. So the situation with me, both of my girls went to a school. That school has since closed because of the pandemic. And the oldest one, I'm not worried about her going back. We have to choose a new school. I'm not worried about it. The youngest one, she shows signs of um, having very difficult times with transitions, just even in our house, like me walking into another room and I had talked to her teachers about that. Like, what do I say? What do I do? And they said, you know, you just have to keep reassuring her. And so now, besides if you're a new parent or even, you know, you're taking your kids for the first time ever going to school and then you have a pandemic and now you have to go back to school is scaring me. I mean, I have seen some of the parents that have gone to the school that we went to have chosen another place, but they had to conduct virtual meetings through zoom and they couldn't walk their child in. And for me, that's not something that I personally can handle. So that just presents a whole bunch of different complications in itself. Yeah, I agree. I think that um, if you have a sensitive child, so one of the signs of a sensitive child is is more difficulty with transitions, meaning there's yes. not, I mean, because it's stressful. I mean, if you think about it, transitions are stressful even if you're not sensitive. And, you know, sensitivity can run through life. So you may be an adult who's sensitive to stress, you know, adults who are sensitive to noise or too much chaos or too much change or, you know, and they have a stress response. So, you know, you can imagine that for for children who are sensitive and, and struggle with transitions anyway, that this COVID crisis is just devastating. You know, it it is on the one hand, I mean, I wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal um, about how very young children are actually doing very well during this period because they're spending more time with their 
with their mothers and fathers than they've ever spent before. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, even if their parents are working from home, everybody's work is sort of titrated. It's sort of uh, uh, shortened, abbreviated. It's it's not the same, and there's no commute time. So essentially, they're spending much more time with, and there's no childcare for the most part. So parents have to take off work and are with their children. So very young children are doing very well during this period of COVID. Um, but school age children who are used to the routine of going to school and having their own lives and used to the transition to go to school and back. They're struggling. And also online learning has been very stressful for for young children. So any child between the age of, let's say, four and nine or 10, it's really hard. Online learning is really hard. Um, The older middle school and and high school students are doing better with online learning. So, you know, it's, I would say it's a really mixed bag, this COVID thing. For very young children, it's been a very good thing. Um, For slightly older children, school-age children, it's, it's really a struggle. Well, is it going to be because we are spending so much time together even harder to go back to school? Yes, just like after a vacation. So when you go on vacation with your family and you spend lots of um, free time with your family um, and then they have to go back to school, you notice that coming back from vacation, while you're on vacation, everything's great. They sleep great. Everybody's happy. And then you come back and there's a stress response. And that stress response might be not sleeping, not being able to fall asleep, waking up in the middle of the night, peeing in their bed again, um, crying in the morning that they don't want to go to school, having separation anxiety again. Yes, because every Every time you um, spend that kind of intense time with your child, your child is, again, dependent on you in a certain way, and they have to extricate themselves. And yes, each time, it's it's like coming back from a very long vacation. And it's stressful. Um, if there was a good foundation there, both of emotional security, which is what mothers do for children, right? They provide that foundation of emotional security. If there was a good foundation there and they had made the transitions earlier uh, to school and done it well, then they'll do it well again. It's not as if this is going to cause permanent damage, but there is going to be a reaction that they have, no doubt. Okay. Well, then with that, another thing within the book, you talk about what's true and false about the widely widely held beliefs like babies are resilient. And that's one of the I use that with my oldest daughter. I said when she goes back to school, she's resilient. She'll be fine. So how do you decipher that? Well, babies aren't born resilient. We help to make them resilient by being as present for them when they're in distress as possible. So the idea is there's going to be a lot of distress right now. And the, luckily we're around. So the idea is the more you can be there and be attuned to their emotions when they're in distress and be there to soothe them and be there to mirror their feelings. So, you know, one thing um, that is the biggest myth with children and parents, particularly in our culture, I'm going to say in the Western culture, is that the way you make children resilient is to dismiss their feelings and to tell them, you'll be okay, kind of pull up your bootstraps kind of old philosophy, you know, just, just, they'll be fine. Don't worry. The kids will be fine. Um, You'll be fine. Pick yourself up. 
The truth is that doesn't make you resilient. That makes you defensively independent. That fails to address the vulnerability in a child. Um, you know, the psychologist Brene Brown, she always mm-hmm. says that vulnerability is strength and courage. Well, let's just say that by addressing your child's vulnerability, by reflecting their feelings, by acknowledging their feelings, by when your child falls down saying, oh, honey, I see you got hurt. Are you okay? Let mommy give you a hug or daddy give you a hug. Um, By doing that, you're making your child resilient because you're actually acknowledging their distress, which helps them to move through the distress. Dismissing distress does just the opposite. It makes for a very, very fragile ego, uh, one that is defensively tough, but inside very vulnerable. Uh-huh. So, yeah. So, the idea is we're going to see a lot of distress, and the best thing you can do as a parent is to help your child with their distress, to soothe them by acknowledging their feelings and cuddling them, lots of physical affection. Um, We need oxytocin, which is um, the love hormone that is produced from nurturing. It's produced in us and it's produced in our children when we hug them and touch them and nurture them. You hug a person for 10 seconds and it produces oxytocin both in you and the other person. That oxytocin is a buffer against cortisol, which is the stress hormone. So what we say is oxytocin and cortisol have an inverse relationship to one another. The more we hug and touch and love and soothe, the stronger that person becomes because the lower their stress levels. And I am a hugger. Amen to that. (laughs) And, you know, it's I'm so glad you brought that up about the uh, acknowledging and not saying, oh, you're tough. Shake it off, because that is one thing uh, the girls, well, the oldest one, her, one of her teachers told me, you know, accept her feelings, acknowledge what she's going through, and that's going to help. And so we try to do that. So I'm so glad you said that because you're right. So many parents, you're tough. Just shake it off. Um, I know that we are wrapping things up and I wanted to talk quickly. I don't know how to talk quickly about this, but how you address what parents are doing or should be doing with some of the situations we're facing with the racism in our country and what this is doing to to our mental state. Yeah, it's interesting because, again, I think we don't want to lie to our children. We want to be honest with our children about what they're seeing and they are seeing it and they are hearing it depending on the age of our children. I mean, babies are feeling our stress because basically babies feel their barometers for how we're doing. So if we're stressed, our babies feel stressed by nature of our, our, our stress. But with older children, you know, you really, it's an opportunity to talk to them about some of these issues. Um, You know, you want to be careful not to expose them to too much of the um, violence and the chaos because it's scary and it's overwhelming. So on the one hand, you want to protect them from too much overstimulation, but you also want to use this, I think, as an opportunity to talk very constructively about very positive changes in society. Talk about it in a very positive way, how society is going through some some really positive changes. You know, people are, you know, values-based things that you can talk to your child about, um, that we're all created equal, that everybody should be treated equally, and, you know, that society is going through a time right now where we're acknowledging that everybody 
is equal. And, and so it's an opportunity to talk about values, about what you believe. Um, it's not all bad, you know, sort of like COVID is as, as terrible as I feel saying that because so many people have suffered so much and it's a terrible time and people have died and people have died alone. But, you know, for very young children, this has been uh, a time of closeness to their parents, interestingly. Um, and I think the racism Again, we, we don't often talk about these issues with our children because we're uncomfortable. Well, now it has forced our hand and they're seeing it and they're hearing it and they're going to hear about it in school and better that they hear about it from you first rather than hear about it in school first, right? You want to teach them your values uh, and you want that to come from your mouth to them. So it's an opportunity. I'll look at it as an opportunity to talk about your values of what you believe to be uh, morally correct at this time. What I took away from that too, though, is the violence. I didn't even think about that, how that can be very scary and overstimulating. So that's a great, great point. And I also, you know, as, as much as I struggle some days with the girls, talking to you makes me put things into perspective. Like this is a time that I will never get back. And this is a time that so many moms did want to be there during those years. So these are super important years for them. They're super important years for me. So I just know that when I'm having a little bit of a moment to take a deep breath and think about that, uh, the book that we talked a lot about today, Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters. It is available for purchase. It is out. It is ready for you. You can pretty much get it anywhere, correct? Yes. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, online. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So you referenced that you were writing a second book, which now I'm so excited about. When do you anticipate that hitting the shelves? So that will be out in September 2021. September 2021. I am writing all of this down. It'll be in the show notes at jilldevine.com. Any last thoughts, any knowledge, anything that we didn't cover that you believe the listener should hear before I let you go? Well, I mean, I sort of always like to end with, just as you said it, you know, in life, we we're going to live very long lives, you know, medical, the medical system, the way it is, um, you know, we have the opportunity to live long lives and we can do many things in our lives. Um, but we can't do them all at the same time. And you have this very small critical window to make a huge difference in the mental health and emotional well-being of your children, not only for now, for childhood, but for the rest of their lives. You basically are laying the foundation for their house to be strong and resilient and emotionally regulated for the rest of their lives. And it's such a small period of time to um, give to your children, for ve- a ve- which casts a very long shadow on the rest of their lives. So I say you can do everything in life, just not all at the same time. Oh, amen to that. And lastly, Erica, you conduct workshops. And even though you're not in the St. Louis area, you are doing virtual stuff. Where can people reach you? So, well, one thing I can say is I do YouTube. I have a YouTube channel and a lot of videos on different topics. So if you just want to hear about something like, you know, why letting your child 
cried out is not good for a child's brain or when you should uh, introduce the idea of reading and math and academics to children. Those are all on my YouTube channel. Um, and then um, I do mostly private seminars for schools. So I consult for a lot of schools and corporations um, and, uh, and I do private consultations. So if anybody really has questions about their individual child, I do parent coaching and then I do private consultations. So you can contact me on www.comisar.com and it says contact um, if you're interested. I'll be looking at those YouTube videos quite a bit. So yeah. thank you for that. And again, all of the information will be on the show notes page at jilldevine.com. Erica, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and spending some time with me today. Thank you, Jill. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me for today's episode. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and if you're feeling really generous, write me a review. And don't forget to join me next week for a new episode of Two Kids and a Career.